Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnerless. I grew up in New Jersey. And a rite of passage for many New Jersey families is to spend time down the shore during the summer. Twice, because of my grandmother, we were able to rent a small cottage in Point Pleasant, New Jersey, and spend a week at a time enjoying the ocean and, of course, the boardwalks of the Jersey Shore. I'm not exactly outdoorsy, but as a kid I did enjoy playing on the beach. But once I discovered the arcades at the boardwalk, it was hard to keep me on the sand. The first time we stayed down there... Pac-Man was still a very hot video game, and I could not get enough of it. Would beg my family for quarters to play, and my mother would force me to play on the beach for a while before she would give me a quarter or two so that I could run into the arcade and play. Well, at the one arcade on the far side of this boardwalk, I can't remember the name of it, they were having a contest to see who could get the highest score in Pac-Man. All you had to do was sign up, and you paid for your own games, You were given four chances, and if you got the high score, there were a whole bunch of prizes. You could win a stereo, a bike. A lot of people signed up, and I was one of them, and I really wanted to win. Unfortunately, I was not very good at Pac-Man, so I thought, how could I remedy that? At each little shop along the boardwalk where they sold towels and sunscreen and stuff, that year Pac-Man stuff started showing, including a book. That book was called How to Win at Pac-Man, and... I would spend almost as much time in each of these shops reading how to play Pac-Man as I did in the arcade or in the beach. I would stay until somebody would yell at me and tell me that this wasn't a library, and then I would move on to the next one and try to get better and better. Unfortunately, there were people who were just a lot better than me. So the contest starts, I show up, they had a couple of Pac-Man machines, and they checked off your name, and then there was a guy walking back and forth watching people play and writing down scores. I went through my first three games way too quickly to do well, and the guy sort of gave me a disapproving head shake as he walked by and wrote down the score. I was looking back and forth at the other people playing. I could see the focus on their face, and then something just clicked. I put that quarter in, and I had my best game ever to that point. The guy came by, and instead of giving me the disapproving head shake, he gave me the approving head nod and wrote down my score, and I thought, oh my, I think I might have won something. This contest was going to keep going for a bit, so I ran out to the beach where my family was seated and started jumping up and down, freaking out, saying, I think I did real well, I think I did real well, I think I might have won a bike. Now, I didn't come in the first three places, which had really good prizes, but there were prizes for the top ten, so four through ten all got the same prize, and I was lucky number eight. I was lucky enough to win a copy of How to Win at Pac-Man, couldn't believe it, a Pac-Man hat. And one of my favorite possessions still to this day, a Pac-Man wall mirror. The Pac-Man hat was chewed up by my dog when I was a kid, and I have no idea where the Pac-Man book went to. I think I might have lent it to a friend who never gave it back to me. A lot of people have great arcade memories, times that they're spent plunking quarter after quarter into video games, maybe time spent with their friends or family. On today's show, 
contributors from the podcast website and friends are going to contribute their memories. We have a memory-filled episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. off with an arcade aficionado, Rob Flack O'Hara, as he shares his memories of the birth of arcades in his area and how wonderful a birthday arcade party could be. I was probably eight, nine years old when uh, arcade games really first started getting popular. You know, it seems like within just a couple of years, all of a sudden, every place had arcade games. Uh, Not just arcades, of course, but uh, the local grocery store the pizza place that was near my house, the bowling alley, um, everybody started getting arcade games. My town has about just a little over 20,000 people, and we had two or three dedicated arcades just here in town. And then there was the really big arcades like Cactus Jacks, which is still around. Um, Cactus Jacks had somewhere around 100 machines. And then there was Bally Lamont's arcade, which was the biggest and best arcade around. It was about 20 miles away from my house. And it was located at Crossroads Mall. So since it was, you know, kind of far away, we didn't get to go there a lot. But whenever my parents would go to the mall, uh, my sister or my friends or whoever, we would always go there and then just hang out at the arcade, you know, the whole time. And since it was sponsored by Bally's, you know, they got all the brand new games. So any new game that came out, Le Mans is where you would see it first. So one year, I think it was... um, 1985, maybe 1986. This would be like 7th or 8th grade. Uh, My friend Andy had a birthday party. And I remember it was right around Christmas time, maybe January. um, But it was really bad weather. I remember there was ice on the roads. And um, he had also invited my friend Jeff, who lived by Andy. So my parents dropped me off at Jeff's house. And then Jeff and I rode with Andy and his family to go to Crossroads Mall to go to Bally Le Mans for his birthday. And I think they had invited like 20 kids uh, all together and they bought one of those birthday packages where every kid got like three, four, you know, bucks worth of tokens, something like that. So anyway, when we got there, because of the bad weather, none of the other kids showed up. So it's kind of a bummer for Andy. Um, it was good for us because, um, first of all, we got to split birthday cake between four kids. But the better part was that they had these 20 cups full of tokens, you know, uh, a little cup for every kid. And basically, instead of splitting it, you know, 20 ways, we split it four ways. So all of us, we were just pouring these cups of tokens into our pockets. I mean, I remember my pockets, like, being so full, I almost pulled my pants down and running around and playing, you know, every brand new arcade game, uh, playing Dragon's Lair, Stun Runner had just come out. There was a couple of brand new games. And then Valley Le Mans always had a special area up front that would say, you know, brand new, now playing, something like that. And they had just gotten Gauntlet. So um, we spent a lot of money that day playing Gauntlet. You know, as a kid, your dream was always like, 
you know, I mean, maybe your mom would give you a dollar or a couple of bucks or something in the arcade. Uh, and you always think, like, what would it be like, you know, if you had 20 bucks to blow or whatever? Uh, and on that day, we did. So that's one of my uh, best arcade memories was that entire day of just spending hours in the arcade uh, and just going through all those tokens. That's good stuff. Thanks, Rob. Next up is a retroist contributor who needs no introduction, Vic Sage, who talks about his earliest memories and the magic of showbiz pizza and a misunderstanding with his father about showbiz pizza. Choosing one arcade memory is pretty hard for me, but I'd like to share the first experience I had visiting our local showbiz pizza. When showbiz pizza opened up, I wasn't lucky enough to get to visit it. It would in fact be over a year and a half from its grand opening before I would finally be introduced to the Electron and Nirvana within. My father raised me as a single parent and did his very best to shield me from, quite frankly, how poor we were. This was never really a problem in my youth, until showbiz pizza. Every Monday at school, my classmates were buzzing with excitement, talking about all the games they played at showbiz and filling my head with mental images of the shows Billy Bob and the Rockafire Explosion performed. And every Saturday, heck, probably every other day, I would beg my father to take us on Saturday afternoon. And I do mean I would beg. It wasn't just wanting to experience the kind of fun my classmates were having. At this point, I already knew I was a gamer. I would play the Atari 2600 before school and after and would think about it when I couldn't play it. I'd played plenty of arcade games, of course, at my local grocery stores and you know, convenience stores. But the games that my classmates were telling me about sounded like the greatest things ever created. I had to get a taste of those machines or I knew I'd just die. Well, like I said earlier, it took me over a year and a half before I finally got to step inside showbiz, and even then it seemed the universe was conspiring against me. We pulled up and the parking lot was nearly empty, odd for a mid-afternoon on a Saturday. We parked the car and I ran to the front door and there was a sign on the window. It was closed for renovations and it would open next Saturday. I'm not too proud to admit that I had been so excited that it was finally my turn to experience the place that I was bawling by the time my father caught up to me. My father actually felt so bad for me, he took me to the mall and let me buy a new Atari 2600 cartridge. Keystone Capers soothed my disappointment for that weekend. And the next week, we made the trip back to showbiz, and immediately we knew it was open by the amount of cars there. My father told me to stick with him no matter what, and we entered showbiz pizza together. There were easily 200 people there as we stepped in, and the music from the Rock of Fire explosion was deafening. I could see where they were located far in the back of the building. Fats was singing a cover of Fats Domino's Blueberry Hill. This first visit for me would cement a lifelong love of that animatronic band. Even over the music, though, was the sound of the games. That electronic din called to me like nothing I had ever felt before. We were greeted at the door, and while I was looking at the prize redemption counter, I overheard my father ask the greeter where he paid the admission fee. She told him there was no admission fee, and he looked mighty confused. To cut to the chase, my father was led to believe by his co-workers that not only did you have to pay an admission fee to enter showbiz, but you had to order pizza while there as well. I remember my father telling me all of this on the drive home, and he apologized that it took so long for him to take me there, but to be honest, my head was spinning from the games I had played. Classic titles, one and all. Popeye, Donkey Kong Jr., Joust, Pingo, Pole Position, Jungle Hunt, Moon Patrol, Congo Bongo, Journey, Defender, Zaxxon, 
Zookeeper, Crystal Castles, and Burger Time. Though this personal story of mine is more about the showbiz pizza itself, and not one particular gaming memory, I can add that every weekend my father would take me back and let me spend hours playing. These were some of the happiest times I ever had, and led me to dream what it would be like to work at an arcade. Something that I would find out 28 years later. Thanks, Vic. Next up is Weird Paul Petrosky, who takes us on a trip to the malls and arcades of his youth, the machine shop and we learn how we were expected to master a video game before the convenience of the internet. There were a couple of arcades within walking distance of my house. They were inside of two different malls, and it was only a ten-minute walk between them. They both had the same name, The Machine Shop. I would usually walk down with my cousin, Brian. We'd do this almost every day of summer vacation. On the way, we'd first stop at the Hills Department Store, where they had all the home systems set up to play. Atari, Intellivision, ColecoVision, the Texas Instruments computer, and even some of the rarer ones like the Vectrex. You could only play the one cartridge that they decided to insert that day, and if it was something like Tron Mazatron, you couldn't figure it out anyway. If there were a lot of kids there, it might be a while before you got your turn, but at least it was free. Then we'd head on over to the machine shop. The machine shop at the closest mall was much smaller and had fewer games but the other machine shop was larger and would occasionally get the weirder, newer games that I'd read about in Electronic Games Magazine, which I had a subscription to. I remember playing games there like Satan's Hollow, Wacko, and Bubbles. I would wait ages for them to get the games I really wanted to try, like Super Pac-Man. I would sometimes see these games on the evening news program Entertainment Tonight, which I'd watch every night for any segments on video games. I'd always tape those segments on the amazing new machine my dad had just bought, a VCR. The guy in charge at the machine shop wore a red apron with a large pocket in the front, filled with the gold arcade tokens that the machines ran on. Occasionally there'd be a coupon in the paper where you could get six tokens for a dollar instead of the usual four. We'd only have a few quarters, and since Brian and I were not talented game players, we'd usually lose our lives quickly. But we'd have fun doing it. Some of my favorite games to play were Rally X, Venture, Ms. Pac-Man, and Donkey Kong. Since we would run out of money so quickly, we would usually spend an hour or more just watching the other kids play. They'd have their quarters lined up on the machines so that you knew it wouldn't be your turn for a while. I didn't mind only watching. I could gain information this way, what the next board would be like, and what kind of strategies I could use if I made it there. I decided I was going to become great at Donkey Kong. Since I couldn't even make it past the second screen, I spent $1.95 on a small book called How to Win at Donkey Kong that I saw at the village newsstand, which was on the lower floor of the mall. It guaranteed that I would add thousands of points to my score. There were some patterns that showed where to move Mario so you didn't get killed, and then you could get to the top. Even with this book, I still didn't excel at Donkey Kong. The book did have good information, though. It reported that the pans on screen 7 that came towards you were called cement tubs. One day, while at the machine shop, some older kids were playing, and they made it to that screen. I then proudly announced to my cousin that the pans were called cement tubs, thanks to the info I got from the book. The older kids were not amused at my lecturing, and they called me Smarty Shorts, as I was wearing shorts since it was summertime. I was very upset with this new nickname. Thanks, Paul. Now we have a submission from Doug. Doug is a regular on the podcast and site, and he shares the memories of the good and the bad about seeking out games of his youth and how paying for games turned you into an economist. The first thing I remember about arcades is that there weren't enough of them 
in my area. I missed the very beginning of the arcade era, which started with uh, Pong in the early 70s and continued with all the Pong clones. I just had not been born and come of age yet, but I was there for the second stage, which started with Space Invaders and continued with Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, Frogger, Q-Bert, Centipede, Millipede, etc, etc, etc. The golden age of arcade games. And I did get to play all those games, but I didn't play them in an arcade. Instead, I played them in convenience stores, pizza parlors, movie theater foyers, bowling alleys, and all sorts of other places like that. I played these games in those places not just because they could be found in those places, but because there was no arcade around me. There was no arcade in my neighborhood within walking distance for a 10, 11, 12-year-old. The second thing I remember about arcades is that they could turn you into a little pre-teenage miser. You had to become a little economist as you were walking around all these wonderful arcade games. And I really borrow that term economist from Stephen King. He talks about the same phenomena in his book Dance Macabre where he uh, discusses something wicked this way comes and the way that kids have to carefully manage their money when they go to a carnival uh, such as the boys in that novel do. Well, this was something I understood completely because it was something I had experienced personally. I had experienced this in the arcade. If you had a dollar, you usually got four games out of it. You would either get four quarters if you were in a place that used quarters, or if you were in an arcade that took tokens, you would get four tokens for a dollar, matching up with the quarters, or sometimes you would get an additional token. You would get a bonus fifth token. So you got somewhere between four to five games. You had to weigh your choices carefully. You had to be very cautious about what you spent that quarter on. You didn't want to lose it in 15 seconds on a game that you didn't know very well. You didn't want to waste it on a lame game. You didn't really want to wait for someone else to finish playing, but often that's what you had to do. You didn't want to be playing while other people were watching you, but that's often what you had to do as well. You really became this little miser. You were tight-fisted with those quarters and with those tokens. So those are some kind of unpleasant memories about the arcade, actually. The way that there just weren't any in my area at the time, and the way that they turned you into a miniature Ebenezer Scrooge. There were many wonderful things about the arcades as well. I did get to the arcades later on in my uh, late middle school, early high school years. There was an Aladdin's Castle in our mall. Before that, though... There was an arcade near my grandma's house in Dayton, Ohio that I used to be able to go to when I went down there to visit. It was called Crazy Cats. It was in a strip mall. It had tinted windows in the front. It was dark inside, had fluorescent lights, had some sort of little cat mascot character, pretty similar to all the other arcades. But it was my arcade for the time that I was at Grandma's anyway. It was the arcade that I would hit three or four times during the week that I spent at Grandma's. As I recall, I avoided skee-ball, even though skee-ball was in there. Again, I had to be the miser, and I wasn't going to waste my quarters on skee-ball, even though you could get tickets to redeem for prizes, including Star Wars figures. No, I saved my tokens, my quarters, for the Star Wars Return of the Jedi 
arcade game. Now, this was a very different game from the vector graphics, Star Wars, and Empire Strikes Back that you might be familiar with. This was a raster graphics game that covered a lot of the parts from Return of the Jedi, including a speeder bike chase and flying the Millennium Falcon out of the uh, Death Star. And I put so many tokens into that game that I actually started to get good at it. By the time I left Grandma's, I was able to make it through most of, if not all, of the stages of the game and had earned quite a bit of cred at Old Crazy Cat. So even though there were some unpleasant sides to the arcade experience, there was a lot of reward to it as well. Thanks, Doug. Now let's join Pax from the Nerd Lunch and Cult Film Club podcast as he talks about the arcades of his youth, including Showbiz Pizza, where he won a breakdancing contest, Diamond Gyms, a mini putt, and the highly underrated arcade at Six Flags. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and I'd have to say my very first arcade memories are from a Showbiz Pizza right in downtown Hoover, Alabama. The Showbiz Pizza, I remember having a lot of the old school games like Spy Hunter and Frogger and Centipede and Donkey Kong, those types of games. And I would go there all the time and I'd beg my parents to take me and it was pretty close to our house so I went pretty often and... uh I even got a chance to have a birthday at that show, Biz Picho, which which was great. And uh, later on, I even won a breakdancing competition at that show, Biz Pizza. That show, Biz Pizza, was converted to a Chuck E. Cheese, and a lot of the video games were gotten rid of and replaced with Kitty Ride games. Um, but that location is still there, and it is still open. My second probably biggest arcade memory is from a arcade called Diamond Gems at the River Chase Galleria. This place I remember getting a lot of the games like the large Tecmo Bowl uh, video game and the Punch Out video game which was really good and uh, 720 Degrees and John Elway Football. All these games showed up at Diamond Gems first and those were where I got to play them and this was the first place that I actually saw Street Fighter 2 and saw people playing against each other and these guys were like swamis on this game and um, seeing unbelievable things happen it was it was awesome the third probably most memorable arcade for me in Birmingham uh, was a putt-putt golfing games Um, it was it was open until fairly recently probably six seven years ago and uh, it was here that I would go and play a lot of the fighting games I played like Mortal Kombat Mortal Kombat 2 Street Fighter World Heroes this was the place that I first played NBA Jam and NBA Jam Tournament Edition. And here they had tournaments. Uh, this pop-up place would organize these tournaments and you'd show up with a partner and you'd play. And it was really kind of amazing. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And I'd go with my friend Steve and we'd take, take on all comers. The last place wasn't necessarily in Birmingham, but I remember this arcade very well. It was at Six Flags over Atlanta, right next to the Scream Machine roller coaster. It was this little... Uh, arcade place and it had probably 10-15 machines in it but it was uh, there were several machines in that arcade that I never saw before and I never saw since there was a the sequel to punch out super punch out and I played it once and uh, I also saw the return of the Jedi arcade game there for the first and only time and uh, it was always weird to my dad that uh I was more excited about going to this arcade than I was actually going to the rides at Six Flags. So those are my main arcade memories from when I was growing up. Thanks, Pax. Next up is our only team arcade memory, as Zerb and his wife Shelly 
discuss their memories of video games past. Well, when I was like a teenager, it was mostly pinball. Yeah. Pinball. I love to play pinball. Well, what was the first video game that you would have played in an arcade? I don't know. I used to love Centipede, and I used yeah. to love Frogger, and Pac-Man. And you got to see all that come out? Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember when Pac-Man came out, and I remember when Centipede came out. For me, it was um, Spy Hunter. When Spy Hunter came out, and we used to line up the quarters right up. Did you used to line up the quarters? Yeah. Do you know that nowadays, if we tried that, something terrible would happen, and all the money would be stolen? And I know. Be... But yes, we used to line up our quarters and put it in the machines and play it. What was the one with the little spaceship? Space Invaders. Space Invaders. Yeah, 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 yeah. I used to play that one, too. Yeah, and Lady Pac-Man. Lady Pac-Man. Or Pac -Man. Miss Pac-Man. I don't think I've ever seen Lady Pac-Man. <laughs> Miss Pac-Man and Donkey Kong. I like Donkey Kong. Frogger was a fun one that came out. I like to play Frogger. I didn't really like Frogger. That was for girls. I like Frogger a lot. Frogger was good. I just wasn't good at it, but I just felt terrible imagining that poor frog being run over <laughs> by vehicles. When I got older, we ended up down in Boston Commons, which was located right next to Washington, D.C., like outside of Roslyn. And that they had Tilt. Tilt was the name of the arcade that came in there, and it was loaded wall to wall with all these new fang dangled machines. And you could sit in these machines and yeah, race yeah, yeah. the cars, or you could fly a spaceship by sitting inside of it. And it was like a little yeah. it was like a little hut, a I little clubhouse, that. if you will, for the kids. Yeah. And I love that. And and uh, that's something that you don't see anymore, which I like. Mm -mm. The closest thing I've seen to it nowadays is when you can sit on the motorcycle and make it move, rock back and yeah. forth. And well, they have the dance ones where you sit on the dance floor. See, now there's no reason for that. <laughs> I think that's just lazy programming. Oh, that'd be fun, though. No. I think it'd be fun. No. I don't know. No. How did it make you feel to see the changeover from pinball to video game format? I thought it was pretty cool. I thought it was like, wow, how do they do this, you yeah. know? That's what I thought when I saw Pong. This is the coolest thing. But I still love pinball but and pool, but yeah, it was fun. To yeah. transfer light yeah. and move it in any position you want so yeah. that you can make things I do things. Like, how, how did they do this? It was really cool. I thought it was really cool. Yeah. Even the silly music and, you know, it was fun. What was your favorite part about Donkey Kong? Oh, jumping over the barrels and... I always like what that. about what about Mario? Just the fact that Mario. Oh, I love Mario. Yeah. I, I Mario. I say Mario. I say Super, Mario. Super Mario Brothers. I just thought it was so fun bouncing, Mario. boing 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 boing, bouncing over the things and like, hitting, <laughs> hitting the little the little bricks. I always loved the one where you had to jump in the cloud, or you know where the clouds were, and you had to jump and try to get the coins, and mm -hmm. you know it was fun. You know, I I thought it was really fun. That's Mario. I know. Mar Mario. Super Mario. That's why I said Super Mario Brothers. I thought you were talking about Donkey Kong. I love Donkey Kong. Oh. Can you make the sound that Donkey Kong made when he ran? I don't remember. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it sounded like a chicken. It was such a fun game. Jumping mm. over the barrels, trying to get up there. And I love the... <laughs> now I, I like to play Wii. Now I'm lucky if I can go somewhere and find a payphone. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they have them much anymore. Girls like Wii. 
I love Wii. I love the sports games. I love the active action, being active and playing a video game. I love it. I like Xbox, but I can't have one because I'm married. And you're 42 years old. And that ends our section of <laughs> our video games. Thank you so much for listening. Yes. Go get some exercise. Turn off the computer. Goodbye. <laughs> Thanks, Urban Shelley. Now let's travel back in time to the Denver area as Vin Vectrix shares his memories of the Celebrity Sports Center. I grew up in the Denver area during the 1980s, and we didn't have too many arcades in the neighborhood. The local mall eventually got a small arcade, but for the most part, if I wanted to play a video game, I was limited to the solo cabinets in area restaurants or the supermarket. The Denver metro area did have some showbiz pizza parlors with arcades that we occasionally visited. But the ultimate arcade experience meant a trip to Glendale, to Celebrity Sports Center. Celebrity Sports Center was founded in 1960 by a group of famous investors that included Walt Disney, Jack Benny, Bing Crosby, George Burns, Burl Ives, Spike Jones, and others. The enormous complex featured 80 bowling lanes and a massive indoor pool, with three huge signature water slides that arced outside the building, making the structure a unique landmark. And most importantly to me, in my formative years, the center featured not one, not two, but three separate large arcades. And these glorious arcades contained the latest in video games, ones that would never make it to the local supermarket. For the first time, my eyes feasted on the likes of Dragon's Lair and the sit-down version of Star Trek, with Leonard Nimoy's voice welcoming me aboard. The huge space meant they had room for older machines too, such as my favorite, Berserk. Games I had only heard about, like Popeye, Mappy, and Puyan, were there for the playing. Perhaps because we couldn't visit Celebrity Sports Center too often, my experiences there were extra vivid. After witnessing all the exercise we kids got swimming in the pool, my parents seemed more willing to indulge us in a few quarters for the arcade. But they were already ready to head home at that point too, so we were rushed to select one or two machines to pump a few quarters into. With my limited arcade playing skills, a quarter never lasted too long. Especially on the brutal dragon's lair, which demanded an astronomical two quarters to play. And then, all too soon, we were back in the car for the long ride home. In 1994, after losing money for some time, Celebrity Sports Center closed and was torn down. There's now a Home Depot standing on the spot. I haven't been inside, but somehow I doubt it features even a single arcade amongst the tools and construction materials. Thanks, Vin. Finally, let's join Metagirl as she disobeys her mom and enjoys the magic of her local Starport Arcade. When I was a kid, too young to stay at home alone, I was often obliged to escort my mother to the local mall. She would park at Bamberger's, which was the one department store that carried shoes in her odd size. I was charged with spotting manifestations of the rare nine and a half narrow width pump on the typically disorganized clearance racks. After shoe shopping, we'd leave Bamberger's and enter the main section of the mall. We'd mill about, window shop, occasionally stop for a scoop of Baskin Robbins, and so on. But there was always a section of the mall that my mom didn't allow me to visit. It was the wing that housed the movie theater, a pizza place, and the spaceport arcade. 
While she never detailed why I wasn't supposed to hang around this section of the mall, I heard murmurings about an unseemly element, mostly made up of disorderly, chain-smoking teenagers loitering in and around the arcade. There was also the older crowd, those that used to be unruly teenagers, but were now just burnt-out adults who never left the arcade after dropping out of school. We kids of the 80s were made to fear stranger danger, and Spaceport, which was full of strangers, seemed rife with the potential for child abduction and drug enslavement. While the reputation of the Spaceport frightened me as a young girl, I was irresistibly intrigued. For years, I had been aware of this illicit place, but I could never get close enough to see what was going on inside. So when I got a little older, old enough to be dropped off at the mall with my friends, one of the first things I did was visit the spaceport. My heart raced with anticipation as I approached the sci-fi-looking, spaceship-themed gateway. As rumored, there were teenagers hanging around the entrance smoking cigarettes, but they pretty much kept to themselves and didn't hinder me as I passed through the entrance. Once inside, I realized, with great relief, that my parents had been completely wrong. Rather than being accosted by an army of drug dealers and child abductors, I was greeted with a feast of light and sound. There was a thumping sound system playing the hits of the day, but the 80s playlist was merely background to the cacophony of sounds emitted from the assorted video games, pinball machines, electromechanical games, and air hockey tables, not to mention the cheers and jeers emitted from the players. The lighting was intentionally dim to showcase the blacklight-sensitive accents around the room, and of course, the visual electronic eye candy provided by the games themselves. I deposited my first quarter in the Frogger machine, as I was familiar with this game from my at-home Atari edition. What I discovered was... I sucked. The arcade version had a much looser joystick, and I found it nearly impossible to gain control of my frog. He'd leap forward into trucks and waterways when I thought I was sending him to a clear portion of road or solid log. I lost my lives very quickly. Already a little dejected, I decided not to play a second game because other kids were breathing down my neck. As naive as I was, I recognized the look on their faces, a look that said, Hey little girl, you stink at this game, why don't you step aside and let some real players have a shot? Regretfully, I did. I moved on to my next game, Centipede. Now at home I played Centipede with a joystick, but in the arcade the game offered a trackball, which is really a much better controller considering the nature of the action, but if you've never played with a trackball, your accuracy on the first try may be a bit chaotic, as was mine. Nevertheless, I found this tremendously fun because it was such a different experience. Even after the game was over, which was pretty quickly, I found great joy in just spinning the trackball as fast as I could by repeatedly running my hands over the round surface. That is, until the spaceport attendant shooed me away from the machine. My final game of the day turned out to be my favorite. It was the sit-down version of Pole Position. I loved that I could physically get into the game. Closed off a bit from the outside world, no room for kids to creep up behind me, pressuring me to relinquish control. My favorite aspect of Pole Position was probably that it seemed very close to real driving to me. Separate accelerator and brake pedals, shifter, sport-style steering wheel, and laid-back bucket seat, I felt like a grown-up out on the open road, or the closed track as the case may be. Now I won't claim that I was any good at pole position, but my first quarter lasted a bit longer than it had on other games, which I found encouraging, so I played a second round. And as happens with practice, my second game was better than the first. So the sit-down version of pole position became my go-to game, a place that I felt at home in the arcade. That woman's voice would say, prepare to qualify. 
and I would brace myself for my next driving adventure. In life, as in pole position, we must all prepare to qualify. We qualify for life by learning new things on our own, by approaching novel experiences with caution, but not assuming that what others, including our parents, have told us is necessarily true. We prepare to qualify by not succumbing to intimidation and peer pressure, as I did at the Frogger machine, and by learning that even when practice doesn't make perfect, it often yields improvement and satisfying sense of accomplishment. Thanks, Spaceport, for preparing me so well. Inspiring words. Now I know the arcades of our youth, the types that we went to, are few and far between, which is sad, but there are still a number of retro arcades out there. So this weekend, why not check to see if there's one in your area, and please support it. In the era of home video games, these might seem like relics. Of course, you could play at home, but the idea of playing video games in a social environment is not outdated. It's still a magical experience. And if we all try and want it hard enough, maybe a second a silver age of arcades could dawn. It's just a matter of getting out there, grabbing a pocket full of quarters, and making some new memories. Beep, beep. Beep, beep. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist.com and twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you have musical needs, you can email Peachy at peachy at retroist.com. Thanks to Rob O'Hara. Rob is a regular contributor to the Retroist site and podcast. You can also find him at his own website, robohara.com. He also has a podcast of his own, which you can download at his site, called Looking Back with Flack, that has a lot of great retro memories. Check that out. Thanks to Vic Sage, regular contributor to the website and podcast for his segment. If you have any feedback for Vic, you can email him at vicsage at retroist.com. Make sure to check out his posts on the Retroist all the time. Thanks to Weird Paul Petrosky for his segment. You might have heard Weird Paul's music during the Yars Revenge podcast. He's an amazing musician and has a great web presence. You should check out his website at weirdpaul.com, but also check out his YouTube channel, which is tremendous. And you will be surprised to see that even in the 80s, some people were what we would call vlogging, and Weird Paul might be the first person to have done that. He's been posting his videos there. You can find them at youtube.com slash weirdpaulp. Thanks to Doug for his contribution to the show. Doug is a regular contributor to the site and podcast. You can find more of Doug's work and books. He also has a podcast there about found footage films at authordougmccoy.com. Thanks to Paxton Holly. Pax is a regular contributor to the Nerd Lunch podcast and the Cult Film Club podcast. You can find out more information about Pax at his website, Cavalcade of Awesome, which is a great name for a website, and that is at cavalcadeofawesome.net. Thanks to Zurb and Shelley for their contributions. Zurb has contributed segments to The Retroist many times and has his own website, Zurbinator Land, which you can find at zurbinator.wordpress.com. Thanks to Vin Vectrix for his contribution. Vin is a longtime contributor to the site, and if you search The Retroist, you can find his very good posts there. Finally, thanks to Metagirl, who is also a regular contributor to the podcast and longtime contributor to the website. If you have any feedback for Metagirl, you can email her at metagirl at retroist.com. Thanks to everyone for sharing their memories. I hope this inspires you to go out there, play some video games, and have a great weekend. Beep, 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 and makes us weather wise. Beep, 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 beep.
Maine's new frontiers. Beep, 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 for future pioneers. Look at it whiz! It must go at least five miles a second or it'll never stay up. Some of them can go around the earth in only an hour and a half. Beep, 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 around the earth it goes. Beep, 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 and that's how science grows. We can't stress how important you and your job are to Spadesport's success. You're a vital link in a growing chain, and you can grow with us by understanding your job and always being polite and courteous to every customer because every customer is our most important customer. You're a winner and that's why we picked you. We're glad to have you on our team and we hope that you can make a career out of working with Spaceport to make us America's number one family entertainment centers by being the very special people that we know you are. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.